You want to see the future of the aluminum industry? If you don't have a mentor, you're going to take 10 times longer to figure something out. You have to listen to the customer. Uh, what are their needs? What are their problems? Pay attention. Look around. What is your voltage? Podemos decir que somos una de las de las empresas líderes. Uh, so, well, thank you so much for being here. This is another episode of Dirty Scrap, the Aluminum Podcast, and I really appreciate that you are making time for us. It's an honor to have someone like you that has all this knowledge and that, that you are talking about sustainability that everyone is talking about. But I think you are one of the most, let's say, interesting people to know regarding, um, let's say, issue we have in the industry because you are taking care about so many different approaches. So thank you so much for being here. How are you? How are um, you today? I'm good. I just finished my five-mile run in 100 degrees Fahrenheit heat, so I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for calling. <laughs> <laughs> just, that's just great. So first of all, partial in science, um, metallurgical engineer from the Indian Institute uh, of, Technolog of Technology in Kampur, um, MBA, several MBAs in uh, corporate planning, executive NDA, MBA, and also a PhD on metallurgical engineering. How was your trip? Let me know about your background and how you end in this sustainability, let's say, industry, because everything happened like an accident, right? Not, no one is like, okay, I want to go in that direction now. So how was your trip from your school till now? Well, you know, I'm from India originally. I I, I did my bachelor's and master's in India, a well-known school called Indian Institute of Technology, IIT Kanpur. And I came here a long time ago, quite, quite a long time ago. I tell my grandkids I came here before Columbus came. So Quite, quite a long time ago <laughs> and uh, in the history lessons for my grandkids. And uh, and I went to University of Michigan for my PhD in uh, metallurgical engineering. And then I am also a registered professional engineer in the state of Kentucky and in my MBA from University of Pittsburgh, as well as uh, Knoxville, University of Tennessee, an exact UMBA. Right. And I have been in the aluminum business for quite a long time. I started working for a major uh, aluminum company, uh, Alcoa, actually, in 1974, University of Pittsburgh, uh, sorry, in, in Pittsburgh. And then most of my work was smelting and, and um, alubara and, and mostly carbon anodes and aluminum technology. And, mm -hmm. and that uh, made me travel to different places where Alcoa was developing the new smelting process in Tennessee and Texas. And then uh, after about 10 years at uh, Alcoa, I moved to Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, where I was working for an Conda aluminum, which became Arco aluminum. Yep. And there I was developing new smelting technologies. And I worked with see, that time we had two plants, the one in Montana, uh, Columbia Falls, and other in uh, Seabree, Kentucky, which still exists there. And I used to work there. So I've been to those plants. And then also as a part of the Arco aluminum assets in in bauxite mining and bauxite refinery, uh, we had uh, mining operations and alumina refining operations in Jamaica and, and Ireland. So I've been to those places. Uh, so I was there uh, for a, quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Atlantic Richfield, which later became
became British Petroleum, which later became Tri-Arrows, uh, they decided to build a brand new aluminum rolling mill. That's the only rolling mill built since 1983, 50, 50, 50 years ago. Now there are a few more under construction. And so I spent uh, about 20 years in the uh, state of Kentucky, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and also in Russellville, where, where aluminum rolling mill was there. And I worked uh, from the fields of uh, uh, sales and marketing and customer qualification. And I was the startup uh, technical manager at the rolling mill. And so I was, then I retired for the first time in 1999. And then I had an academic career at University of Kentucky from 1999 to 2008, where I was an adjunct professor. And also I started uh, an aluminum research company, CCAT, in Lexington, just still in existence. Uh, right. Then I retired the second time in 2008. And then I formed this company that I, I own and run, Phoenix LLC. And here we have we do a lot of technology-based research in aluminum recycling and scrap. And then we have uh, confidential proprietary contracts with aluminum companies. For the last 10 years, I have mostly have worked in sustainability and scrap. And, and, and basically, the reason I got involved is I realized that U.S., is the biggest importer of everything. The whole world makes and we import. Yep. And so that is not a sustainable scenario. And we're trying to find out now that the supply chain all goes to China, then we don't yeah. have any rare earth, we don't have anything. So the manufacturing has been rejuvenated. Uh, and then then one day dawned upon me, U.S. imports everything from all over the world after the use is still here. So like they say, there's a saying in Las Vegas that what comes here stays there. Right. So that has been my motto that if you import aluminum from all over the world, you know, Russia, Canada, India, Middle East, uh, and you make products and you consume it and the end of the life product still here. That has been my passion for last, I'll say, 10 years is to how to increase the recycling rate of the product. And more importantly, how to use the recycled products uh, to make uh, to make new products. Now, re- Scrap and recycling has always been, always be the lowest carbon material. Now the world has discovered that uh, the such, there's no such thing as low carbon aluminum without scrap. And, right. and the world is selling low carbon aluminum based upon hydrometallurgical hydropower in the world, which is only found in four or five countries and it's not expanding. So for us to make a sustainability goal, I've written an article on the 10 pillars of aluminum sustainable and a lot of conversation a lot of discussion i'm happy to share that uh, aluminum sustainability in simple terms to me belongs to two main items okay and if these two main items are not satisfied i don't think you can call ourselves a sustainable industry the first one is the bauxite residue or red mud for every ton of aluminum make we make four tons of uh, bauxite residue and like people like we say that 75% of aluminum ever made is still in use. And I mm-hmm. say 98% of bauxite residue ever produced is still not in use. Uh, so unless mm-hmm. we do something to use a bauxite residue or red mud right. uh, to recycle or, 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 you know, accidents happen in Brazil, accidents happen in, uh, uh, in uh, Hungary and almost happened in uh, Ireland that the, unless we mitigate the box errors to problem, it's very hard for us to claim self 
self-claimed, self-claimed uh, sustainable material. So that's one right. item. The second item is that in U.S. still we have very high, low rate of aluminum recycling. And based upon marketing slant, we try to confuse the recycling content and recycling rate. Recycle content. Oh, interesting. Is, re recycle content is how much recycled product you have in a product. It does right. not mean that half of them were landfill. So if you start with 100 tons of aluminum, uh, you you discard 50 tons, but everything you make is from the 50 tons that's, that's not recycled. So that's 100% recycled content, but that mm -hmm. misses the story. The real, real barometer is what percent of aluminum used in the world, especially in the U.S., it is cycle. The rates are very high for automotive product, 90 plus, mm -hmm. uh, pretty high for aerospace product, but it's really low for packaging products. Aluminum foils that you use on Thanksgiving to bake turkey or, or eat your burritos, uh, the recycling rate is 8%. That means after every 100 pounds of aluminum foil, only 8% is recycled. Wow. Other 92% is and landfill. Oh, that's very low. Very low. And then an aluminum can, for every ton of aluminum cans made, U.S. makes about 120 billion cans a year. Billion cans. Yep. And more than half, more than half, 55% of that can goes to land. The value of their waste is about $2 billion a year. So, but if you see the way we write, oh, I, I wrote an article on greenwashing of aluminum. A lot of terms we use are not really technically correct. We say aluminum is infinitely recyclable. It is not because every time you melt aluminum, you lose eight to 9% in drops. Right. So if you mathematically, if you recycle 13 or 14 times, there's nothing left. So 14, number four, 14 is not infinite. Infinite is much larger number. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so that is a greenwashing. And other, we never talk about recycle rate. We talk about we have a great product we make, have a very high recy recycle content. An average public on the street gets confused. Oh, this can is has very high recycle content. Makes no has no meaning to what uh, what's being said. And then people are promoting. Okay, let's use low carbon aluminum in beverage can. And I say, oh my God, that's audacity <laughs> of being stupid. We 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 smelt aluminum in using hydropower, use inert anode, all the famous technology to make low carbon aluminum and make aluminum can, and half of them goes in landfill. So we're we're putting the best technology, best resource just to land. And wow. I, I always say to people, I always have a trivial pursuit question and say, Guess who is the biggest customer of aluminum can? Landfills. Well, say, Landfills. People <laughs> say Coke and Pepsi or Novellas or right. But the biggest customer for aluminum can US is Mr. Land. And wow. and that is astounding. And I remember 20 years ago, plastic was being touted as recyclable materials and all that till somebody saw the plastic island in Pacific. And then that changed the thinking about plastic. Right. We have a good story. We're not solving the two biggest issues, the bauxite residue, the close to a billion tons of bauxite residue laying around all over the world, mm -hmm. the highly caustic materials. And as it leaked in Brazil, it destroys the fauna and flora and human lives. Uh, so we need to do something about that. Uh, there's a company in India, actually, Hindalco, that they're using the bauxite residue to make cement. And so that's a very encouraging it's, it's result. It's very clever. It's very clever, yeah. yes. And, and we need to do 
that. And then obviously, we don't talk about the aluminum can recycling rate. Look at any commercial made by aluminum companies, a can company, you will never talk about 46% recycling. So, so I boil down all my effort for the last uh, 10 years have been what can we do to use more to use reuse the box air residue and what can we do to change the recycling rate aluminum people say oh, aluminum recycling rate is low in the u.s because u.s is advanced country well so is mm-hmm. japan so is norway so is switzerland i mean right. they're advanced countries but we don't focus on what needs to be done. So those are the two main passions I have. I get up every morning and say, what can, what can I personally do, do to motivate companies? And I'm not trying to motivate young people. So because young people have a voice and they have a longer life to live on the planet than, than, than at least I have. Right. Uh, so that's my motivational thing. As far as the research is concerned, I think what I'm trying to do, make my modest uh, contribution is that what can we do with scrap to make it useful so it can be used in the primary product? Mm-hmm. I, we just um, announced from Remade Institute in Rochester, New York, that we developed a patent printing process to recover, to remove the impurities from uh, from molten aluminum, scrap aluminum, meaning magnesium, iron, manganese, copper, zinc, and silicon. So if you can remove the if you can remove these impurities from secondary aluminum scrap melts, mm-hmm. there's there's a less need to import aluminum foreign country. It makes no sense to import aluminum from all over the world, bring it to US, make aluminum can, and half of them go to land. Yeah. There's absolutely no I mean, so how can we call ourselves a sustainable industry? We were not answering the basic questions. So those are things I'm passionate about it. I I eat, sleep and drink and and uh, and breathe on on those terms. Anyhow, I spoke a lot. I give you my opinion. Very opinionated, but I give you my opinion. No, that that's fine. That's that that's uh why we are doing this. So but let me ask you something because for me it's surprising that fifty percent of the cans that we are producing here is that going to landfill. Oh, 55 is even more. Is, is even more. I mean, it's crazy because we have a lot of different technologies right now in the industry that promise to reach 98, 99 melting efficiency. So that means that the dross uh, creation level is a little bit lower, right? Because we have all the sorting and cleaning lines we can see right now. But it's crazy to me that all these cans are going to landfills instead of going to the recycling industry. Because we have the the, the the tones there, right? So we can do more. Now, saying that, those cans that are going to the landfills or the scrap jar, different ones, do you think or do you really believe because the industry called those zero carbon footprint materials? Is that real? Is something like no, that exist? Why? It is not. It's like you have a, a boat and you cut the boat in half and you say, well, the remaining boat can float. Well, it cannot, you know, because... Whatever other half. And so a lot of activities are going on in this area. But I have been in the aluminum industry since 1974, long, long, long time ago. And uh, we have been talking about aluminum recycling rate ever since. And there really no substantial movements towards utilization of scrap. No substantial movement about importing less. And, and you know, in the U.S., probably not a prime place to make prime 
primary aluminum because of cost of electricity and environment right. control so and all high. that. And it takes, uh, you know, three to four billion dollars to make a smelter. So those are not realistic uh, um, aspirations. But aspiration of raise the recycling rate and aspiration to say landfilling would not be tolerated. Right. Like and in Europe, I don't right? See, I don't see that passion. And that's what mm. I'm trying to do is try in my own way. I, you know, I write, I talk, I do work uh, to promote those bauxite residue and landfill mm -hmm. and entire land. Right. Yeah, because I am seeing a lot of these, let's say, approaches in Europe. You, If you want to go to the landfill in Europe, it's very, very high cost. Here in the U.S. is very cheap. So you, you just don't care, right? You just can handle all your salt cake or your drawers or whatever it is or the recycling material that you are not putting into the recycling industry. Just throw it there. It's fine. It's cheap, you know. But talking about recycling, the recycling industry, when we talk about zero carbon footprint aluminum materials, that is not true. What are those items that we need to take in account to understand what is the, the contribution of this carbon footprint in those materials or in this scrap? Because at the end you will have, I don't know, alloying element, transportation, all this stuff that no one is talking about, but they are contributing to the creation of the carbon footprint, right? See, the way I look at Julio, uh, mm -hmm. zero carbon is really not the right goal. It's like you have a house and your basement is leaking because the boxer residue is going in the lake. Right. And your roof is raining because your recycling rate aluminum can is 46%. But you have a great, fantastic living room with stereo system and hi-fi and Wi-Fi. What good is that house? So to me, zero net carbon and focusing everything on carbon dioxide is really not the real issue. The real issue is that what are you what are we making and how, mm -hmm. how much are we recycling? One. And while we're making this, what are the things that potentially go in the landfill at the end of the process or in case aluminum, the beginning of the Right. The focus ought to be there. Net carbon zero is a fancy name, sexy name. It talks about hydro cost. Hydro it's marketing. It's marketing. Yeah, it's just pure, simple marketing. It, it is, yep. you know. And and there's not nobody in aluminum industry in US can do anything about hydropower because we don't have it. We don't have the economic incentive to build uh, primary aluminum with latest and the best and highest technology because we can. But yet, having all that, we are chasing the marketing hype of low zero carbon footprint. We're right. not worried about the injured leg or injured hand. Right. Wow. It's, it's very different because we are always, or I am talking always about the recycling industry and the zero carbon footprint, not zero carbon footprint, but the, the low carbon footprint aluminum. And you are seeing all these partner apps with uh, the big car manufacturers and those big aluminum players because they want, I mean, if you want to build an electrical car, what you want to use is zero carbon footprint aluminum, right? Because right. it makes sense. It's green. Now, saying that, what I'm realizing talking with you is, okay, it's, it's not possible to have zero carbon footprint, but it's something there that we can do, of course, to low down the carbon footprint. How do you see the selection of technology against the type of a scrap? Because at the end, everything is about efficiency, right? How efficient I can go in certain processes to produce the biggest amount of aluminum or to keep the biggest amount of aluminum recycling into my process, not creating too much dross, not creating too much fumes, cleaning all these different stuff. How do you see the relation between scrap and technology right now? Okay, so let's talk about technology. The best way to process scrap is to 
make the product that's recycled friendly. Mm -hmm. we, we add all this exotic alloying element in the aluminum and more exotic elements and more product differentiated stuff we make, it is less recycled. So we have in aluminum business, we have like 250 alloys, registered alloys. Yep. Do we need 250 registered alloys? We don't. No. So company Company A goes to auto company A, said, I have this special alloy C. And then next morning, other companies go and say, I have a special alloy C1. Right. So we make two alloys have comparable impact on the process, C1 and C, C, C and C1. And once they're made, and mix in the mixed in the scrap mix, you know, thermodynamically right. have increased entropy. Yes. So yes. you you mix it and you have to unmix. Mm -hmm. And unmixing, if it's mechanically done by shortation, is cheaper. Right. But unmixing, if it's done by chemically, is more expensive. It is. So, so the first step is to design the alloy that recycle friendly to begin with. Mm -hmm. And second, we we need to be able to short the products like in automotive industry when you stamp the hood or uh, or the panels you know you have a 5000 series alloy and 6000 series alloy mm -hmm. if they're separate bin that's life is much easier but it's not right. separate they're they co-mingled because easier oh, yeah. they easier to dump it together so if you co-mingled yeah. it it costs money to co-mingle it and it costs twice as much money to unmingle uncommingle right Right, right. So, you know, what, what? one of the problems that I'm seeing in the industry, I, I've been in the United States industry and the recycling industry in the U.S. for more or less seven years. I start very, very, very young uh, back in Colombia. I'm from Colombia. I'm Latin America. And it's a little bit different. But the, the issue that I'm seeing in the, United, in the United States in order to meet the goal that everyone wants to reach, that is the lowest carbon footprint aluminum that you can produce, is in some point to me, the scrap jar and the recycling industry talking about foundries, they are not merge, merging together. They are like separate different industries, but they, they, they are part of the same industry, right? Also, because I'm seeing a lot of different scrap jars trying to go in a different direction and become foundries instead of let's partner up with the with the foundries and start doing a better job land uh, in the scrap jar in terms of, of sorting picking the right alloys and putting uh separate right they we, we don't we don't have that why why is that i don't understand do you do you have an idea about why we are doing and why we are going in that direction because for me is if you want to keep it simple start doing a partner up with the scrap jars and they will give you a better value added product because you don't need to sorting or cleaning or whatever it is in order to reach more efficiency into in in, in, in your aluminum recovery process right what do you think about it why we don't well, have that merge there's no simple answer there are a couple of potential answers one is scrap industry are normally small and family owned and privately owned and historically haven't had a culture of collaboration and okay. second U.S. is still a very entrepreneurial company where everybody is trying to get a get a you know for point one cents per pound. If I can get extra tenth of a cent by doing something else, right? Our system and reward system promotes that. Uh, so those are the two main and answer is that the collaboration is not part of our culture, especially in a privately owned small companies. And 
and then technology develop technology takes time and money and patience True. and most of small privately owned companies don't have so yeah. there are some options there's some collaborative research that's being done by many many consortia like for example remade in Rochester New York I'm part of that and we have several projects mm-hmm. so that's the first time in long time that small companies are working together to find IP protected technology yet share the research. Uh, in Europe and other parts of the world, collaboration is much more common because the resource there is limited. You have fewer True. companies, you have fewer players, and you have fewer, you know, smaller market. So collaboration is necessary in the US, yeah. but it's changing. It's beginning to change, saying that there's no way a scrap company alone can develop something, technology, that technology development requires four things. It requires money, requires talent, and record requires the ability to fail. Right. And and have immense patience that that uh, something it may fail but five of six failures with the com- with right lessons you succeed so that is not a hallmark of a small entrepreneurial family owned company so those Agreed. are my honest opinion right so going in that direction we will have post post consumed scrap and pre consumed scrap right Right. For the people that is out there, what is the difference? Because I understand very well the difference. The difference of post-consumed scrap is the material that you already use and is going to the bag, uh, uh, scrap yard. The pre-consumed scrap, I will say that is all this scrap that you are having inside your facility after you are making all your products. And it's like, I don't know, gays uh, and browners. Right. Or customer facilities. Like you make aluminum can sheet and sell that to... Uh can companies and they stamp aluminum cans out of it so they have like 27% of skeleton scrap right. or automotive companies when they stamp the panel or the hood right. so you they have, have 17 yeah so that's all pre-consumer scrap because they have not been contaminated by going in the use so right. they are they are much easier to handle than the uh, than the post-consumer because they have been the customer use they have been contaminated and co-mingled and all that so there's a big right difference. what is the difference between those regarding the carbon footprint because at the end from my point of view or my understanding the the scrap that is going to the scrap jar is already zero carbon footprint Correct. and the pre-consumed scrap still have all the energy that you put into Correct. for the aluminum transformation what is the difference because at the end the post-consumed scrap went through the whole process also so what is the big difference there? Many companies uh, take credit for the pre-consumer scrap at zero carbon input. That's not correct because you're still in the factory. So if you have a skeleton scrap, they still has energy embodied in it right. to make their product. So it is, it is incorrect to treat that as a, as a zero carbon because it's not zero carbon. However, if it has go to post-consumer, it already has served its useful pur- purpose and has enjoyed the life. So that truly it is zero carbon, zero carbon input because it has been discarded, has been used. So there's right. a big difference between post-consumer and pre-consumer and normally or mostly a primary aluminum companies, they like to promote the pre-consumer as a scrap and like to take a full credit is incorrect methodology. It should be only the post-consumer should have a zero scrap value, zero carbon right. value. But I have a really, I think it's a good question because at the end, okay, we are saying that the zero carbon footprint scrap is the scrap that ends into the scrap jar because it was used, the, the useful life is end. But what what about, because at the end, the, post, the, the pre-consumed scrap is the perfect alloy, okay, right? You already have the alloy elements, 
everything there. You just need to melt it down and fix a little bit. But when you have scrap, you need to use energy for the transformation. You need to use element, um, alloying elements. You need to use transportation and all these different items add to the carbon footprint chain, right? So at right. the end, which one is more efficient talking about in terms of carbon footprint in when I am processing for the aluminum transformation to have, I don't know, ingots or whatever it is, which one is a better option? Any material that has not seen the final consumer in the plant or in the customer's plant, mm -hmm. that is highest return because right. the minimum alteration is required in terms of compositional. It is basically you can melt it and remake uh, same material. Right. And you don't have to short it. You don't have to adjust the composition. You have to melt it, obviously. So that is the highest value proposition to use as much pre-consumer or prompt scrap as possible. Now, when it becomes post-consumer scrap, still better off using post-consumer scrap than landfill. So, right. yeah, and you have to, so in spectrum of the worst landfill feeling, one slightly higher than that using the post-consumer with a lot of mechanical treatment. And then third one will be using the post-consumer in a downgraded application. It was meant for, say, automotive, but you're making building a product. So that is right. still better than landfill than because, you know, you're making product order. So we want to avoid land landfilling. We want to avoid downgrading. We want to avoid as much treatment as possible uh, on post-consumer. And if you made the alloys to begin with correctly, then we require minimum alteration of either shortation, either by physical means or chemical. Right. Yeah. But, but at the end, when you are using post-consumed scrap, you will have paint, oil, yeah. dirt, whatever it is. So you will need, of course, treatment yeah. processes. Sure. So now to, to get into the in, into the final stage of this, this episode, because I know you're very busy, man, and I really appreciate that you are having some time for us. Um, What, from your point of view, do you think that in the United States, we will see more aggressive, let's say, regulations regarding landfills right now? And also, do you think any other technology that we are seeing right now into the industry going to disappear, like rotary furnaces that are very dirty, they are very fast. But for me, you just need to use a rotary furnace to, you know, handle draws or, or salt cakes, but not to refining they are very fast but they are not very efficient so you are creating a lot of draws out of the draws and smoke and whatever so what do you think do you think that we will see more and more uh let's say impact on the regulations regarding to the landfills and which technologies we will see like going apart and being replaced that's actually requires more conversation because there's no easy answer uh, legislation depends upon you know what kind of political system we have in place and which state you're talking about right and Regulations in Texas will be quite different than regulations in New York, right? So that's yeah. very, it's not, you know. And then what technology will be useful, not useful? I've learned one thing. Anytime a new technology comes, the old technology always fights back, like yeah. a famous <laughs> S-curve. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so basically the technology, new one is here and old one is here. And as soon as the threat comes, old one starts improving, the, the famous S-curve. So right. that's so, it, it's difficult to replace invested capital. And so I enjoy oh, talking to you. And if there is an opportunity to talk more, uh, you know, we can consider that at a later time. Oh, we, we will definitely have more opportunities. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And again, thank you everyone for being here with us and hopefully you will enjoy this episode. Um, so both, thank you so much again. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. Thanks for doing this service to the industry. 
Julio, I really appreciate that uh, to have unstructured conversation, uh, you know, with yeah. many people of different diverse backgrounds. So, right. great. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.